Humans show time and time again that restriction leads to rebellion. And what happens when we rebel against ourselves? Hmm? Have you ever followed a restricting diet? Heck, have you ever restricted your behavior in other areas of your life? What ends up happening? Let's talk about it. Roll the intro! Welcome to <sighs> Coffee with Cashy. Mrs. Cashy made me this one, so it's extra good. All right. I am your host, Dr. Trevor Cashy, and on today's episode, we are actually talking about food stuff. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. Uh, this episode's focus is on restrained eating versus disciplined eating. Ooh, the whiteboard of wisdom is out. This is what we're talking about. Restrained eating versus disciplined eating. Moreover, how the insanely heavy focus on what to eat actually distracts from the important part, the eating part. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. How you eat and the reasons you eat are more important than what you are eating. Let that sink in while I eat this delicious foamy foam, right? First, Dr. Kashi tells a story to give you an idea of how and why he thinks the culture surrounding food has gotten wacky over the past 50 years, citing some infotainment propaganda of the previous generation, right? Then, Dr. Kashi talks about how this contributed to an exponential rise in and a widespread integration of food morality, uh, strange rules that foster restriction, and oddly enough, a big reason people can actually diet their whole lives and still manage to get fatter. All right. Last, Dr. Kashi introduces the concept of discipline eating as a way to guard yourself against all the nonsense. All the nonsense. All of it. All right. So let's get it on. Let's get it on. Story time. Instead of going on a full-blown nerd rage against the food police, I'm just going to generically comment on the entire industry of hysteria-inducing food propaganda. Specifically, the infotainment mockumentaries meant to shock you, influence policy through the public's reactive cancel culture, and, most deceptively for you, the unfortunate viewer, uh, how do I say this, uh, entertain you while making you feel like you've learned something, <laughs> okay? Uh, the food cop I'm referencing today is the leader of the popular infotainment special, Super Size Me, right? Where this guy pushes all of your food buttons, making you feel like you'll be completely lost and too crippled to take care of yourself in the presence of literally anything tempting. He trolls around Texas, eats McDonald's for every meal, and supersizes every time it's offered. Supersizing has since been redacted, by the way, <laughs> okay? His hypothesis that he is testing is that if he does this for one month, he'll, one, get fatter, two, feel worse, and three, have blood work that reflects getting fatter and feeling worse, right? Even a superficial analysis of this experiment reveals that he does more than eat at McDonald's. He purposefully and gratuitously gorges there. He routinely imposes arbitrary rules on himself to eat until he busts, even when he feels bad and is full from the previous meal or even the previous day. He is willfully, he's a willfully ignorant human garbage disposal, blindly consuming everything he served. In the early parts of this mockumentary, it shows him getting sick and regurgitating because he's so overfull and feels so awful. And near the end of the mockumentary, it, it positions him as some sort of specialized athlete overcoming his physiological limitations. Such courage and bravery. Don't you agree? <sighs> All right. In the end, he does get fatter, he does feel worse, and his blood work does reflect those two things. Congratulations? I'm still kind of confused as to what point he was trying to prove by his experiment, but he did accomplish a few things. 
Okay? He made himself fatter and sicker by purposefully gorging at every meal. Shocker, right? He did entertain people, as is the purpose of any infotainment mockumentary special, right? It did create an uproar with people who are just as willfully ignorant as him. And it did, in my opinion, cement the integration of the catastrophe known as clean eating. <sighs> Indeed, the end of the mockumentary champions that clean eating, the clean way of eating is, surprise, surprise, vegan. And this clean eating monster uh, only really succeeds in making people feel morally superior to eating this or morally inferior and dirty for eating that. I did a whole article series from another place on that stuff. Maybe I'll talk about it later. All right. Uh, in, in any case, this is much like all of the obnoxious and arbitrary food morality systems. Okay, so let's explore the problem a little bit. There is a lesson here. And this lesson does have less to do with McDonald's, though, and more to do with generating chaos and exasperation every time you even think about eating, fostering confusion, second guessing everything you do, and feeling attacked or guilty for enjoying the food that somebody else has arbitrarily labeled dirty, and that eating these dirty foods makes you a dirty hedonistic savage taking your life into your own hands. Although on second thought, there are worse things than being an autonomous person fending for themselves. But that's for another non-alcoholic beer, right? Nevertheless, internalizing these arbitrary values created by infotainment propaganda is a huge part of what perpetuates cognitively restrained eating, okay? This means that there's a consistent and relentless nagging about what you eat, when you eat, how much is clean, and, and that robs you of some or all of the biologically integrated satisfaction of eating. Eating is supposed to be rewarding and satisfying. It's supposed to be, okay? And even if you do eat the foods you enjoy, at one point you enjoyed them, this is spurned from rebelliousness. Like, screw this guy. I'm going to eat because he thinks it's dirty. I'm going to do this, you know? Or you're burnt out. Like, I can't take eating like this anymore. This tuna and twigs diet. I'm eating like a rabbit. This is crazy. Give me that pizza and ice cream, right? And defeat, All right? None of this matters anyway. First, you have to overcome some cognitive hurdle that you're breaking somebody else's arbitrary rules that maybe at some point or at some point you have internalized as your own. They all came from somewhere, okay? Then, once you've managed to convince yourself to break the rule, you have to go through the shameful, even if a little bit, acts of purchasing, preparing, ordering, and possibly the embarrassment of somebody else watching you eat it, or maybe you're embarrassed together, or maybe you do it alone. <laughs> and once you've broken the rule and made it past shame mountain, it's all downhill from there. Right? Since you've already started, you may as well just keep doing it. <laughs> Taking all this into account, you actually have to generate a negative attitude to eat the things you like. <laughs> you have to generate a negative attitude to eat the things you like, sustain a negative attitude while eating it, and then perpetuate the negative, negative attitude after you eat because of the perception of what happens to your status, mind, and body having eaten it. <sighs> right? And... <sighs> right. This is why I differentiate restrained eating versus disciplined eating. Restraint versus discipline, okay? Thinking caps on. Thinking caps on. We're taking a closer look now, all right? Yes. <laughs> all right. Dr. Kashi defines restraint as the mind and body working against each other. And Dr. Kashi defines discipline as the mind and body working with each other. Now, these are all of my own arbitrary rules and biases and definitions, but for the sake of the conversation, this is how I am operationalizing the terms, all right? In other words, you can think one thing and do another, okay? And the result of prolonged restraint is that you stay restrained in your mind, but become chaotic in your actions. 
And this discrepancy between values and behaviors creates a crazy sort of tension that's manifested as being good and then being bad and blowing out. And circling back, this creates rebelliousness. Screw the man. Burnout. I can't take it anymore. And defeat. None of it matters anyway. It's common to think that there's a problem with you. Indeed, Dr. Cashy thinks you are perfectly fine. It is the cognitive looping sustaining the problem. Comically strict, conflicting, and arbitrary rules, this creates friction. It creates friction, especially with how you think and what you do, right? Thinking one thing and doing another. Restriction leading to disinhibition. A cognitive behavioral schema so common, there's even a fancy nerd word for it. <laughs> What to do next, all right? So here's a primer on disciplined eating uh, by discussing discipline in general, right? Again, Dr. Cashy defines restraint as the mind and body working against each other, and Dr. Cashy defines discipline as the mind and body working with each other. And Dr. Cashy wants to be clear, discipline is reasonable, actionable, and expected. Indeed, is the only way to function in civilization as we know it, let alone solve problems, master skills, and reach new heights in our lives, okay? So to be tactless, I know you've wanted to ram somebody that cut you off and you probably continue driving as normal. <laughs> to that end, is it acceptable to think about being violent when your expectations are violated? Hell yeah, it is. That's okay. <laughs> to that end, is it acceptable to be freely violent every time your expectations are violated? Realistically, no, no, all right? It is the cognitive restraint that ends up causing so many problems. For instance, if you created a rule for yourself that it was illegal to feel sad or angry or jealous, and many people do, how do you think you'll end up? I'll save you the trouble. A sad, angry, jealous, depressed, and anxious wreck. <laughs> and your actions would reflect that. In other words, when you create these rules, you shrink. You shrink the space between stimulus and response by making it easier, right? A hard and fast rule makes it easier for you to respond. But the easier response is faster, and therefore you shrink the time and gap between stimulus and response, and it becomes so small that you have only given yourself enough time to recognize that you're angry or sad, and then be angry or sad about it. <laughs> That's what that means, okay? Indeed, if it was okay to feel sad, angry, and jealous, then when you notice it, it gives you the opportunity to pause and analyze, thereby injecting logic and reason between stimulus and response. And this affords you the opportunity to moderate the way you behave, thus fostering a constructive outcome for yourself, right? In other words, urgency is different than emergency, all right? Emergencies, to steal from Covey here, are effectively urgent and important. Emergencies are urgent and important. Annoyances, inconveniences, negative feelings, and other environmental stimuli, you know, like a, like a craving or a pinging text, right? It is urgent, it is urgent. They create powerful action tendencies, right? Indeed, the perceived urgency of something, it is far removed from its necessity, all right? The urgency and the nagging of that action tendency is totally divorced from the necessity of the action, right? And this is where discipline is important. Because remember, discipline is when your mind and body work together, and discipline is the difference between acting on impulse and acting constructively, constructively. If it's an emergency, deal with it. If it's anything else, it can wait. It can wait, all right? And that might mean putting off notification. It might mean put off catering to a whiny person. It might mean delaying a craving until your next meal, right? Are these all urgent feelings, right? Whiny people and, and pings and, and cravings? Yes, they feel very urgent, right? Are they, an important, are they important or necessary to deal with as if they were emergencies? No, 
All right. And here's where things kind of get funky because over many years you may have accidentally or purposefully, but probably accidentally taught yourself that one is the other making urges feel like emergencies and bringing awareness to that is the first step It's totally the first step. Okay. So to summarize this stuff a little bit, if you are restricted, then you shorten the distance between stimulus and response. If you're cognitively restricted, right, you speed up the decision-making process effectively, but it's sped up so much that the space between stimulus and response is tiny. <laughs> and the end result is that you limit yourself to eating based on impulse. And this means you lose the ability to foster the awareness that is required to do two things. One, legitimately enjoy and be satisfied with your food, okay? Because this is the difference between sitting down to a meal hungry and leaving satisfied every time and erratically eating once in a while, many times, just until you're stuffed, and then have low satisfaction with that meal anyway, right? And two, creating and maintaining the discipline required to give yourself permission to eat the stuff you want, be aware of how you're eating it, and therefore give yourself a chance to legitimately enjoy and be satisfied with your food. Hmm. And so the solution is to go from being a restricted eater to a disciplined eater, where your mind and body work together toward a common goal instead of bickering like an old couple and having blowouts all the time. So in conclusion, you know, if you're interested in mastering the art and science of constructive eating, then send Dr. Kashi a message and leave him a comment. He gets back to all of them. Want to continue having coffee with Dr. Kashi? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is very much appreciated. Thank you, and see you next week. Dr. Cashy is out. <laughs>